0: All right, here we go. It's been over 30 years since the Jack family went missing from Prince George, British Columbia, Canada. And we still have no clue what happened to them. A family of four, looking to make a better life for themselves. They pack up, leave in the middle of the night, and are never seen again. With the offer of work and childcare, it seemed too good to be true. Unfortunately, it was. No evidence or clues has ever turned up in the case of the missing Jack family. But someone knows something, and it's time to come forward. This mistreatment of indigenous peoples has gone on long enough in Canada. And it's time to shed some light on these cases that have been long forgotten. I'm your host, Michael. And this is Strange and Unexplained. Canada's first and only unsolved missing family case, so many questions are raised, but so very little answers have been provided. Ronald and Doreen Jack both were 26 years old at the time. They had two small children and they were living in Prince George, BC in August of 1989. That's British Columbia, by the way. They had moved there in hopes of finding work, but jobs were scarce and they were running out of options. They had fallen on hard times. You see, Ronald was out of work for a while after suffering a back injury in an accident at work. They were desperate to find work, and fast. Which is why when Ronnie ran into a man at the First Leader, which is a local pub, and was offered a job to both him and Doreen, they jumped at the opportunity. Witnesses say that Ronnie had been talking to a man who offered him a job at a local logging camp and he said Doreen could work as a cook helper in the kitchen. Even better, there would be daycare provided for the Jacks' young children while they're at the camp. So Ronnie was ecstatic, but there was one problem. The location of the camp was quite a drive from the Jacks' home in Prince George, about 40 kilometers away, and the Jacks didn't have a car. So, in a shocking twist, the man offered to drive the Jacks To the camp himself on one condition. They had to leave immediately as he was on a tight schedule. How convenient. The prospect of two stable incomes and a total change of their life circumstances was just too much to resist. Ronnie rode back to his house with the man and excitedly told his wife about the offer. Excited about a change in their future, the two didn't think twice and immediately started packing. They only packed enough to be gone for a little while, as they were to return in about 10 to 15 days. Then Ronnie phoned his mom around 12 a.m. on August 2nd to let her know what was going on. He He had a very good relationship with his mother and called her almost daily. But little did she know, that was the last conversation she would ever have with her son. So fast forward three weeks, or a little over three weeks actually, on August 25th the Jacks' extended family filed a missing persons report after none of them had heard from the Jacks at all. Nine-year-old Russell, their oldest, should have been starting a new school year. And Ronnie was very close to his mother, Mabel, like I, like I said earlier. And she says, on the night they disappeared, Ronnie said, quote, if we go missing, come find us. Now, that may seem very ominous, or like maybe he had his doubts, but I feel like that's something that family members would say uh, anytime they're doing something that may seem a little sketchy, right? I know sometimes if I go to meet someone, if I, if I sell something online, even if we, if we go to a public meeting place, I always let other people know where I'm going, right? And then I also say, hey, if you don't hear from me and such and such, come find me. It's this guy right here, right? This guy got me. <laughs> I know we say that in joking ways a lot of times, especially us who are, who are uh, very involved in true crime, and we take in a lot of true crime. We, we tend to joke about these matters, um, but it's a reality. And whether joking or not, Ronnie felt a little bit of insecurity about the situation, but also felt that his back was against the wall. Doreen's younger sister, Marlene, said she saw the family packing up that night and she regrets every day that she didn't go and speak to her sister first. There have been many searches for the Jack family, including a recent attempt to locate the family's remains by using ground-penetrating technology to search a ranch in Prince George. So that's where we're at right now. So that's that's the basic outline of what's going on. But let's get a little background on both Ronald and Doreen, and let's see what we can... See what we can come up with here. So little is known about Ronald's childhood, um, but it is believed that he had a, a pretty normal, uneventful childhood, um, to say the least. Uh, but for Doreen, things were a little hard at times. Her sister talks about how they grew up, being raised by their grandparents who used a horse and buggy to travel to get water. For the most part, they had a good childhood, growing up outside, learning about the land, and how to live off of it. But when they were not with their grandparents, they were being raised by their alcoholic father, who allowed opportunity for sexual abuse by other men. Men would come over to the house to drink and party with their dad, and they would bring him beer to distract him so they could make sexual advances towards his daughters. Doreen's sisters talked on the podcast Taken about how Doreen would stand up for her younger sisters, even taking abuse to keep them safe. They also shared how they were treated in a local residential school and how they were not allowed to acknowledge each other as family. So I looked into these residential schools. If you're not familiar with these in Canada, uh, these were brutal places. Okay, this is from Indigenous Peoples Atlas Um, And I have this source underneath the description of this episode. Um, But it goes on to say, Residential schools operated in Canada for more than 160 years, with upwards of 150,000 children passing through their doors. Every province and territory, with the exception of Prince Edward Island. Newfoundland and New Brunswick was home to the federally funded church-run schools. The last school closed in Saskatchewan in 1996. First Nations, Metis, and Inuit children were removed, often against their will, from their families and communities and put into these schools, where they were forced to abandon their traditions, their cultural practices, and their languages. The residential school system was just one tool in a broader plan of aggressive assimilation and colonization of indigenous peoples and territories in Canada. Here's a quote from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. It says, quote, The Canadian government pursued this policy of cultural genocide because it wished to divest itself of its legal and financial obligations to Aboriginal people and gain control over their land and resources. If every Aboriginal person had been absorbed into the body politic, there would be no reserves, no treaties, and no Aboriginal Writes, end quote. So in short, they developed a system that mimicked schools in the United States and in British colonies, where governments and colonial powers used large boarding-style industrial schools to convert masses of indigenous and poor children into Catholics and Protestants, and turn them into quote good industrious workers end quote. These schools were used in Ireland, South Africa. Australia, and New Zealand, as well as in Sweden for indigenous uh, Sami children, for the indigenous Sami children in Sweden, as a way for new settlers to claim land uh, traditionally occupied by indigenous people. Canada adopted this model in order to enforce the adoption of European traditions, their languages, and lifestyles by the First Nations, Metis, and Inuit children. Here's a quote by Nicholas Flood Davin um, in his report on industrial schools for Indians and half-breeds in 1879. God, just the terminology alone is, just makes my skin crawl. It says, quote, If anything is to be done with the Indian, we must catch him very young. The children must be kept constantly within the circle of civilized conditions. End quote. Mm, Harsh. That's not enough. Here's another one. By Duncan Campbell Scott. The, and he resides in the, well, he did reside in the Department of Indian Affairs, 1920. Now, that first quote was from 1879, okay? So you take that, you consider the times, whatever. But this next quote was 40 years later, in 1920. And it says, quote, this is by Duncan Campbell Scott, by the way. Quote, I want to get rid of the Indian problem. I do not think, as a matter of fact, that the country ought to continuously protect a class of people who are able to stand alone. Our objective is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic, and there is no Indian question and no Indian department. That is the whole object of this bill. End quote. So you guys kind of get the idea of the theology and the practices um, behind these schools. Okay, these residential schools, harsh places. They were transformation schools. And these children were not allowed to leave. Like it like said before, they're not even uh, allowed to acknowledge their siblings, much less speak their language or um, acknowledge any of their Native American traditions. Okay, so back to Doreen's childhood. It wasn't necessarily all bad. Eventually, the girls were moved to a new school where Doreen, in particular, did very well, winning a brand new sewing machine in a school competition. She had designed an outfit during a contest, a skirt and a shirt, and sewn them herself, and it won her first place. It was at this school that Doreen was asked by Ronnie to be his girlfriend, and their romance began as high school sweethearts. So I'm guessing Ronnie kind of grew up in this school, this school that was actually nice, the school that they liked, right? Um, But while Doreen was studying at Prince George University, unfortunately and tragically, she was raped by an unknown man and became pregnant pregnant with her first son, Russell. But Ronnie, being a stand-up guy that he is, he was not fazed by this at all and treated Russell as his own. And the three of them were a happy family. He loved Doreen. And five years later, Ronnie and Doreen would give Russell a little brother. His name was Ryan Jack. So the four were a happy, close family and are survived by a loving extended family as well, who deserve peace of mind regarding what happened to their loved ones. And hopefully, one day, they will get it. So, there's got to be something, right? Somebody saw something. A family of four... Uh, doesn't disappear with nobody coming forward, right? So there are a few witnesses. Um, According to some witnesses who saw Ronnie at the pub, the first leader, on August 2nd, the man he was seen talking to was a tall, burly man with a mustache and short beard. Police released a police sketch of the man, and it bears a striking resemblance to one David Francis Pickton. If that name sounds familiar, it's because he's brother. He's the brother of infamous serial killer and pig farmer, Robert Picton. If you know anything about their farm, that was a farm of horrors. Okay? And they were not fans of indigenous people. David is known for having a criminal record for sexual assault. It's not a stretch to, th- to link the Jacks and the Pictons, and it may even explain why no remains or anything were ever found. The Pictons were active and killing at the time the Jacks went missing. But other than those few links, that's really all we have to go on. But there is another serial killer who is a possible suspect, and his name is Bobby Jack Fowler. He was an active serial killer slash rapist who committed crimes in both the U.S. and Canada. Fowler was known to frequent the bar where Ronnie was, the first leader. He is one of the killers that chose the Highway of Tears as his hunting ground, targeting and killing indigenous sex workers. The Highway of Tears is a 725-kilometer, or 450-mile, for you metrically challenged Americans like myself, uh, but a 725-kilometer corridor of highway 16 between Prince George and Prince Rupert, British Columbia which has been the location of many murders and disappearances of indigenous women in Canada, beginning in about 1970. But alas, old Bobby Jack didn't meet the description of the man seen in the bar that night. But it is possible that he was there also. However, no physical evidence has been found linking either of the men to the Jack family at the time. The case for the Jack family has remained open, and therefore, very little has been released in order to protect the police's investigation. However, in September of 2019, the RCMP made a new appeal for information, hoping for help from the public, but nothing ever came from it. So the last theory is the most unlikely, at least in my opinion, and I, and I think very, a lot of other people's opinions as well. And that's that the Jack family just wanted to disappear and start a new life somewhere else. No evidence has ever been found to support this theory. The family had nothing in their lives that would force them to break ties with everyone they knew and disappear. It is also possible they are victims of a random attack, and the killer may still be at large. Ronnie's mom and dad spent their entire savings trying to find the family, but to no avail. And Doreen's sisters still advocate on her behalf. Uh, even in up to 2017 at the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. Uh, There, Doreen's sister revealed to the inquiry that she had been told not to talk to the media about the missing Jack family, and if she did, she would be cut out of the investigation entirely. Whatever happened to the Jacks, they did not deserve it, and their surviving family members don't deserve the limbo that they now live in. If anyone knows anything about this case, no matter how small, you are asked to please contact the Prince George RCMP at 250-561-3300. All right, guys. If you know anything about that, if you're up in Canada, please have any information. Put this, put this out there. These, this family deserves some sort of closure of some sort. In this case itself, needs more closure. For a whole family to disappear, the only whole entire family to disappear in Canada without a trace. And it's just forgotten about, or at least it seems to have been. Okay, so my opinion, the Pictons look pretty damn guilty for this. Um, Just because they had the resources, they had the property, they had the means to uh, overtake an entire family. Both brothers working together, they definitely had the means to take on an entire family. And they have the means to dispose of an entire family. Bobby Jack Fowler um, just seems, seems like he wouldn't be looking for that kind of trouble. He mostly, most of his victims were indigenous sex workers. So he was not looking to take on an entire family. Especially not one with a male, I don't think. So I may be wrong. Serial killers sometimes break traditions, sometimes they'll change their MOs, uh, but I don't think that drastically. So that's my opinion on the Jack family disappearance. So let's check in with Lorne and we'll regroup after this and let's see what kind of information he has to add to the case. So we'll see you guys on the other side of the Lorne synopsis. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Break it down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Break it down the case like cardboard boxes.
1: What's up, people? Lauren here, here to give my thoughts on this week's Strange and Unexplained. The 1989 disappearance of the Jack family from Prince George, British Columbia. A family of four consisting of Ronald and Doreen Jack, the parents, who were both 27 years old at the time, and their two sons, Russell and Ryan. They were aged nine and four. All four of them basically vanished after Ronald had been at a pub, met a man, who uh, had the appearance of a logger, very large white man with a beard, uh, dressed in plaid with jeans and work boots who had apparently offered uh, Ronald a job to work at this logging site for a few weeks. And I believe this person killed this family out of, I'm not sure the motive, you can speculate, racism, um, hatred towards indigenous people. They were surviving on welfare. They'd had a very hard time getting along, as a lot of indigenous people did during the 70s, 80s, and the 90s in British Columbia. I'm sure a lot of you have heard about the Highway of Tears, where a lot of indigenous women were killed along the highway. Um, and there's a lot of hate that's that's occurred. And that's, that's occurred not just in British Columbia. It's occurred all over... North America, when it, when it comes to Native Americans, um, indigenous people all over North America, and really all over the world for that matter. Um, people like to come in and be very cruel to people who are already living in certain areas. But uh, this man, there's some reasons that, I mean, obviously he was the last person seen with this family that goes disappears and hasn't been seen for over 30 years. Um, it's clear they didn't just run off and never contact their family again. Um, Ronald was known to, to talk to his mother several times a week. Um, he wouldn't just disappear and never talk to her again with his family. Um, so yeah, he met this man, this man offered him a job. He went, this man went from the pub back to the Jack's home where Ronald tried to contact, I believe his brother and then his mother to see if they could watch the kids. And this is where to me, I was convinced that this, this man that they had met at this bar had cruel intentions because he keeps making it convenient for them to go with him no matter what. He's he's not giving them an option. Everything's too good to be true. Initially, the job offer was for Ronald, right, at the bar. Then he goes back with Ronald to the home, meets the family, and he says, you know what, your wife could also work at the logging mill or whatever with us. She could be a cook there, and we'll pay her as well. That sounds awesome, to Ronald. They need the money. They, you know, they're strug- They don't have a car. They're struggling to make ends meet, living off welfare. Um, and when Ronald calls family members to see if anyone can take the kids so him and his wife can go do this job for a while, um, and they're struggling to get someone to watch the kids, he is immediately like, "Oh, you know what? We have a daycare too at the at the log where we're where we're doing this logging job." That was when I was convinced when I heard that part of the story that. This man had had intentions to do something to this family, to rid of them. I think maybe he had some hatred about the fact that they were on welfare. I think that was fairly common at the time. Um, and I, I think he did something to this family. I think he killed his family, and I don't know where they are. This man's identity is not known. No one knew his name at the pub. No one got a description of his vehicle, sadly. And... He apparently was able to get away with this crime. There was never uh, a man of his description reported missing, as the family would. So, you know, if you thought maybe there was some sort of a, an accident, a car accident, where he was driving them to the to logging mill, and they it's a very uh, sprawling and wide-open part of Canada with, uh, you know, highways where people say that it's it, it's possible you could drive off the highway into some thick brush that would just engulf a vehicle over time, and even 30 years later, not be found. However, if that was the case, if they were driving to this logging place, um, you would think that a man would be re- reported missing um, over this over the course of the 30 years. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I honestly think it's pretty cut and dry. Whoever this man was, I believe, killed this family out of hate. Um, hate that they were indigenous people, hate that they were on welfare. And he was even potentially a serial killer. There's some, there is some discussion and connection made to the fact that the description of this man, potentially being red-haired, large with a beard, uh, that he could have potentially been uh, Robert Picton's brother, the you know the famous serial killer, Robert Picton from Canada. He had a brother that apparently looked quite a bit like this description of a you know a large red-haired man with a beard. Um, and so, uh, unfortunately, I don't know if we'll ever know, there's been some, some uh, clues that have popped up over the year. I know there was a, a random phone call with a recording left to police that was only a few seconds long saying something about, you know, you could find the family on uh, this farm, With that, but the word, the, the farm was, you know, the, the audio was terrible, so they, they're not sure what the name of this farm is or where to find it. Um, so yeah, hopefully someone has a conscience that knew about who did this, who, who the man was that, that killed this family, or maybe even the man himself, uh, in his dying days realizes that he needs to come clean about what he did, but someone needs to step up. Otherwise I don't think it's ever going to get solved. So yeah, that's my thoughts. Um, I can't think, I can't picture any other scenario for this other than this, this man had cruel intentions. And killed his family for almost no, you know, no reason other than hate. So, yeah, it's a sad part of human nature that there are people like this. But that's my thoughts. Hope you guys enjoyed it. We'll see you next week.
0: All right, Lauren, thank you so much for that synopsis. You know, as I'm sitting here and I'm listening to the description of the gentleman at the bar, at the first leader, and I'm thinking, man, that is a real damn descriptive, uh, a descriptive description, right? I mean, what the hell? There's nobody there that night that knew a tall, red-haired man, mustache, short beard, uh, was wearing flannel. G- now, to be fair, I, I guess <laughs> in that area of logging country, Canada, maybe every other guy was dressed. In uh, flannel and jeans and some boots. Um, to me, it sounded like he was wearing like Justin boots. He was wearing like leather boots with the little leather uh, little leather tassel looking thing that covers the toe. You guys all know what I'm talking about. But he had those boots on. I call them Justin boots because I feel like most of the time I see them, they're from that name brand. Um, but it's just such a, it's so descriptive, right? How big is this pub? How many people could have been there? I just feel like way more people are hiding are hiding something about this family. There was so many people there that night at, at the pub, I'm sure. Um and it just it just doesn't make sense that no one, not even the bartender, I mean somebody saw this guy and knew who he was, saw the sketch and was like, yeah, it's definitely so and so. But they probably didn't come forward out of fear. Or maybe as Lauren was saying, you know, he's talking about the the hatred and uh the racism against indigenous people, maybe the people that witnessed this man with them also shared that same hatred so therefore they wouldn't have a reason to come forward either in their own hearts which just compounds on the sadness that is this story so guys that is the jack family i know there's not a lot on this case but again sometimes I pick cases like this on purpose because I don't want to be one more person that passes this up just because there's not enough interesting things or whatever. I still think there's a discussion. And just by having the discussion, just by putting out the episode, having it show up in search engines and things like that, it keeps this case alive. Okay. So guys, check out the Taken podcast that was done with Doreen's sister. Um, Hopefully that would give you guys a little more insight, at least into their childhood. I know Uh, She's not allowed to talk a whole lot about the case like I spoke earlier because the investigation is still technically open, Okay, which is a good thing. It's a good thing that it's still open. Maybe somebody will come forward sometime and we'll get some closure on this case, and more importantly, their family will get some closure. So, guys, I want to thank you for listening, as always. Um, A great way to support the show, patreon.com slash podcast. Number one way to support the show. You guys, you you make a small monthly pledge. You get all these episodes, uh, all these episodes that are released on the free platform, you get them released early on Thursdays instead of Monday. And then you also get access to two other shows I do on there on Patreon only one being Strange Shorts, um, and then one being The Palette Cleanser. Strange Shorts, the one I just released, I just released Strange Shorts Episode 9, I believe, and I think I have six or seven palate cleansers available right now. So if you sign up, uh, you know, you're looking at somewhere around 17, 18 extra audio files that you have not heard before and will never be released on the free platform. I don't want to say never, you know, maybe a Christmas gift or something. I don't know. We'll see. Um, But the most recent um, Strange Short that I talked about was, it's not always true crime. Uh, Sometimes it's just true crime related. But there was an interview of a KKK member. And not just any KKK member, he is over uh, North and South Carolina. He's the Grand Dragon over North and South Carolina. And he gives a very, um, how do I put it, insightful, I guess, interview on a YouTube channel called Soft White Underbelly, which I highly recommend. Uh, people check out, especially if you're in the states. Uh, if you're here in, here in uh, the United States of America, I highly suggest you check that out. Um, gives you a lot of insight into some of the the more uh, lower social classes and people who have issues that that may have that maybe you misunderstand. Not maybe, but if you haven't experienced it, you definitely misunderstand it. Like people who grow up in in Appalachia. You know, in the Appalachian areas here in the in the southeast United States, very, very poor areas. Also, people who grow up in the inner cities and poor areas and projects and ghettos and things like that. You get to know their struggles firsthand. And this YouTube channel, they don't they don't limit people. They let them talk for as long as they want to talk. There's there's interviews with heroin addicts and uh, of drug dealers and pimps and prostitutes and hitmen and conmen and just and KKK members obviously, and uh, it's just it's very interesting. It's very insightful, and it can also, for some of the people who you normally would write off, like addicts and homeless and things like that, it really helps to gain perspective and to gain some empathy for these people in these situations. So I highly recommend that YouTube channel, Soft White Underbelly. But that's my latest Strange Shorts. I I play some of the interview from this member, from this Grand Dragon, and then I also kind of dissect it myself and kind of talk about uh, different aspects of it, especially being from North Carolina myself. So I found that very interesting. Um, Another great way to support the show is leave a review. Guys, wherever you listen, if you can leave a review... It obviously helps other listeners know what the show is about. And it helps to, you know, it helps to gain popularity. If you can give us a share or a like on social media, I appreciate that as well. Um, if you have a case suggestion, hit me up. Uh podcast at gmail.com. Sandupodcast at gmail.com. Probably one of the best ways to reach me. You can email uh, your request there. If you're a patron, just send me a message straight on Patreon. You guys get first dibs. Okay, on any case suggestions. And then as far as social media, at Sandu Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, guys go check us out on there. Hit us up. Give us a follow. Give us a like, whatever. Also, Strange and Unexplained on Facebook. Um, and also want to announce there is a Strange and Unexplained T-shirt design available now. If you guys go to True Crime Guys. Dot threadless.com, which there will be a link in the description below this episode. I've been trying to put it, I think I started last, last week, and from here on out, I'm going to try to remember to put that link in the bottom of, uh, or below every episode description before the sources. You guys can click on there, and you can get your very own strange and unexplained t-shirt, hoodie, uh, print, sticker, uh, mask, Whatever you want. There's, there's so many different things that are available um, on the Threadless website. And it's, it's great quality stuff. And the turnaround is pretty damn fast, in my opinion. So another great way to support the show, guys. We appreciate that. Uh, buying merch or supporting us on Patreon, leaving a review, telling your friends. All of that stuff is greatly appreciated. So that's pretty much it, guys. Um, stay tuned. Stay tuned coming up. We have a lot of good cases coming up. I'm very excited about the future of this show. Um, I hope you are as well. I know I'm not the best at promoting the show on social media. I just get so... I get so exhausted working on the podcast, just working on the podcast. Because um, if you don't know, I also have another podcast called True Crime Guys that I do with Lauren from Lauren Synopsis. If you, for some reason, didn't come from True Crime Guys to listen to this show. So... Uh, we got a lot going on here at True Crime Guys Productions, which is what this podcast is, the umbrella this podcast is under. But it's neither here nor there. We're just trying to bring out a lot of content, trying to uh, entertain you guys during this crazy pandemic, during this crazy time. We want to have something that's worth listening to in your ears. All right, guys. So thanks for listening. Thanks for all your support. We'll see you next week, guys. And remember, be strange. Just don't be a stranger.